Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. One thing you could say about our species is that we are one of the animals who clap. Maybe not the only animal that claps, and it depends on whether you or not you count seals. You look, there's that weird clapping that they do. Seal clapping is not good. Uh, but yes, as bipedal animals, we have the opportunity to clap. There's a pretty good chance that some some person in some Homo erectus tribe, you know, a million years ago, getting everybody all gathered around. Here's something new we're gonna try. We're gonna we're gonna go like this. No, not like that. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> we're gonna learn how to do this, and then when we like something, that's when we'll do it. Maybe a little bit more complicated than that. I'm only only an amateur anthropologist, but we're gonna talk about clapping today in all of its manifestations. One thing you may know or may have noticed if you listen to this show a lot is we like to take a thing that kind of exists in the background of life and drag it into the foreground and put a spotlight on it and see what more we can say about it. And today's show is a good example of that kind of topic. We're going to talk about clapping. You clap probably pretty regularly. You might clap at the end of performances. But you also might have been one of the growing number of people who claps when an airplane lands and you are in it and you are happy that it has landed. I am old enough to remember a time when people did not clap at weddings. That seems to be almost universal now that uh, people burst into applause uh, around the I, I now pronounce you uh, part of the ceremony. Um, of course, we also sort of measure things by clapping. Uh, State of the Union addresses, I mean, how many times did they clap? Who clapped? Was there bipartisan clapping? Was there loud clapping? Was it as loud as the clapping that the last president got? That kind of thing. Uh, so that's a little bit competitive. Clapping has been around for a very long time. When you think about it, it's kind of an odd thing. <laughs> it's an odd thing that we've decided to do, a particular noise we've decided to make manually uh, in order usually to indicate pleasure and enthusiasm. But there's also the whole issue of clapping along with music. We're going to deal with that in the second section of the show because actually clapping along with music, which is something that I probably most people do reflexively and without a terrible amount of thought, among truly musical people, there's perhaps a little bit more of a prescriptive and proscriptive attitude. Clap on the two and the four, not on the one and the three. Clap on the pause, not on the um. Uh, but we'll be coming to that right now. We want to talk about just the whole nature and history of clapping. Here to do that with us is Gavin Witt, professor of theater history at Towson University and longtime dramaturg. So first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. Great to be here for this. 
we can begin probably with the history of theater, right? If we go back to Rome, to Plautus, there is, I think, even at the bottom of some of the manuscripts, there's uh, the hortatory subject of Plaudite. So there's some idea anyway that from some of the earliest stirrings of theater, there was a notion that you should do something to indicate your enthusiasm uh, at the end of the show. Uh, what else do we know about that? That is absolutely true, though. There's also a slightly longer version of that, which is kind of wonderful. Just spectators, give me your loud cheers mm -hmm. and enthusiastic applause. So, you know, it's like a, a whole litany of response. What's interesting to me is thinking about those early indications of, with Roman theater, which is back pretty early to when we start thinking of the origins of at least Western drama, that in the history of theater, there was a stretch before that when there probably wasn't applause, when theater was part of religious rituals. And, you know, how odd would it be to clap in the middle? You talked about clapping at weddings, but clapping in the middle of Sunday mass or something, right? Or clapping in synagogue at a certain moment. Uh, we don't do that. So it was probably not there. There were Egyptian passion plays for priests, and the early, earliest Greek tragedies, of course, were kind of religious recreations of the Dionysus myth. So there probably wasn't applause then. Uh, what seems to have happened was that as theater moved out to be a more popular, secular occasion, this form of interaction with the audience and the expectation of a response evolved. I wonder whether, A, it was part of the competitive nature of Athenian tragedy, right, which was a competition you put on your three plays, and the win a winner among competing plays would be crowned sort of like uh, Master Chef or something for theater. Uh, and whether it wasn't an indication of preference, right, a kind of audience theater. Or with Roman theater, what Plautus was being performed in the public square. Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a commercial enterprise, and it little becomes, I think, a form of passing the hat or encouraging passing the hat. If you watch a street performer today, right, they're going to encourage that response partly because it goes into their pocket. And so I wonder whether that inscribed reaction that you're wonderfully quoting from the end of Plautus plays in the measure of this kind of competitive interaction that gets established as part of the theater relationship, but that was not originally there in theater. Right. I mean, it, and it is sort of interesting to think about whether clapping at the end of, you know, Euripides the Bacchae or something was the same, <laughs> same thing as clapping at the end of a Plautian comedy. But I yes. mean, one, one thing that you're making me think, Gavin, as you say this, is it may also be the product of playwriting and play performing and producing as um, a kind of hived off secular profession as opposed to something that's embodied in a religious tradition or uh, a, a religion-saturated environment. That, you know, that ultimately, if you think about Euripides, Sophocles, not that these plays don't have uh, religious themes, but it's more of a sort of secular profession being a playwright, and certainly the case uh, in, in, in Roman times. Absolutely. And I, I think I would say that evolves. We think of them as a, as a trilogy or a triad, whatever, those three. But that is, that's a generational shift from Aeschylus to Euripides. And that shift from the solo actor stepping out against a, a chorus in Aeschylus to the extremely dramaturgically complicated evolution of multiple characters and thematic complexity in Euripides, where he's really kind of responding against the established cultural mores of the time. And then Aristophanes, too, right, who with Lysistrata and others, the frogs, is lampooning 
the very audience you're sitting there, right? So there's that wonderful the, the opportunity for the collapse of recognition, but it is, to come back to your point, it is an increasingly professionalized, hived off part of society. It's no longer these amateurs or just the priestly caste. And I think the, if I can, can jump ahead a little, the phenomenon that affirms the likelihood of that dynamic that you're talking about, what seems to make it so probable as a as a phenomenon and not just an isolated instance, is that the same thing seems to have happened after theater basically disappears as a kind of cultural institution in the West after the fall of Rome and then reemerges with medieval theater. It once again starts as a religious phenomenon. You have these kind of reenactments of the dialogue between the angels at the tomb of Jesus uh, that then the priests recreate and then you know, professional actors start recreating that and then pretty soon it moves out into the public square with pageants and you start getting a more professional acting class or going around traveling and putting on these traveling pageant shows and you also get more audience engagement so things like the noah and noah's wife sequence is pretty clearly structured in a number of these medieval sequence cycles to elicit audience reaction and applause. And uh, the Second Shepherd's play as well, right? That they're, they're much more secular. They're talking about the lives of the people who are watching them. They're recognizable elements in the, in the dialogue and in the characterization. They feel like they emerge out of their life. And so I think it becomes easier to cross that threshold and applaud and react. And they're no longer these kind of sanctified experiences that you just witnessed. So I think that really supports your point that it, when that happens, when it becomes professional and when it becomes this secular phenomenon, here comes applause again. Right. So then the question becomes, what are the rules? And who sets, ah, who sets the rules? What yes. are the norms? Yeah. I'm guessing that one of the things that emerges as we start to move towards uh, the Elizabethan period, towards the Renaissance, is, first of all, there's clapping, but there's also everything else, right? It's not going to be just clapping. <laughs> uh, our yes. sense of the Globe Theater in Shakespeare's time is you probably had a lot of two-way communication going on between the stage and the audience. Absolutely. And that gets written into the plays, right? In Midsummer Night's Dream, he stages... The phenomenon of audience members, in fact, many who pay extra to sit on stage and talking back to the actors and making snarky comments. <laughs> so it's absolutely a multi-dimensional, multi-directional conversation. And similarly, at the end of that play, he has Puck come out and solicit applause. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. give me your hands if we be friends, but also say if we now have unearned luck to escape the serpent's tongue, don't hiss us. <laughs> so. It's recorded it like, you know, and we know them throwing stuff. I'll use euphemistically at the stage. So, yes, it, but, you know, part of that, so where you're headed, if I can take the liberty of a little, another leap. Sure. Now you're headed, right? So with this sort of 18th century decorum and the rules that we know, it was kind of anything goes in the Elizabethan era once you get to commercial theater. Partly, I think, because there was no fourth wall. There's no mm-hmm. illusion. It's a thrust stage. It's performed at two o'clock in the afternoon in broad daylight, and everyone's milling around. And there's no layer of distinction between the audience and the performance. Uh, you're right there with them, and we know from other performance modes, whether it's stand-up comedy or the circus or whatever, when that happens, when it's more immersive, there's a much more fluid engagement between audience 
and performer. And so applause there sometimes becomes more a kind of collective measure of the experience and not this formal ritual that's more like the State of the Union you were talking about in your intro, right? So if that comes later in the Elizabethan era, as you're saying, it was kind of anything goes and they had to beware of the audience expressing as much disapproval as approval. So at some point, and let's maybe place that point in somewhere in the 19th century, you really start to need some kind of rules. Uh, it's becoming to, uh, much more of a select experience among the audience. Plays <laughs> are maybe starting to be something that only certain classes within society can even afford to go to. Uh, they expect to have a certain kind of experience while that's happening. They probably don't necessarily want yahoos uh, yelling stuff <laughs> at the actors. So at some point, there must have been some kind of effort to institute manners in terms of audience response, maybe establish applause and ovations at the end is a certain kind of thing. I don't know how easy it is to put our fingers, though, on, on when that happens and how that happens. Look, I'm, I'm hardly an expert, and I'm open to critique and response, and I'm curious to see. But I, I would identify two phases of what you're talking about. I think the first phase comes in exactly as you're talking about with this the kind of the pressures of the identification of a bourgeois identity of a collective kind of cultural mores that as theater becomes this marker of arrival is that as the rising urban middle class wants to mimic the aristocracy in all ways theater becomes an expression of that and good polite behavior at the theater becomes a way of distinguishing that that you you are separating yourself you are not like the yahoos in the nosebleed cheap seats you know how to watch, you know when to applaud and how to applaud, and it becomes much more decorous. And I think there are these social codes and rules that become as much about showing that you know what you're doing as they are about any genuine response to the material. That goes along with a reaction to, in France, as I, I'm sure you know, these highly professionalized groups of what they're called the claques, who are people who are paid to come and cheer or cheer. Beaumarchais writes about it saying he has Figaro in the Barber of Seville talk about his attempts at being a playwright. And he was ensured success because he hired the most callous-handed workmen from town to come and applaud his shows and even banned gloves to be sure. That, but this really happened in Paris. People would hire professional applauders. Right? So I think there's also a reaction to that, right? It's a falsity of that. You say, like, let's get rid of that. And this decorum arises. Now, the second piece, I think, emerges in the 1880s, 1890s with two things. The advent of the technology of being able to light the stage and darken the audience, which for the first time in the history of theater, anywhere, separates the experience of the audience from that on stage. Right? Suddenly, the audience is in the dark and only the stage is lit. First, gas lights, then electric lights. And with it, the advent of naturalism and realism and the idea of the fourth wall, right? And if that's going to work, if you're going to be peering through the keyhole, you need to establish that illusion. And so the audience sits silently in witness and the play happens. And then you could break the illusion at intermission and applaud for it. As opposed to like an opera, ballet, right? Where you applaud every good solo and every move and every aria. And there's no kind of illusion of truth. It's happening. So I think it's those two phenomena in the 1950s that really encode what, at least in Britain and the, in the UK and in, in the US, become what we know now as the kind of proper method of watching theater, which is to sit quietly, 
let that play happen, and then applaud if it isn't made the moments. I do want to say that it becomes ex- extraordinarily complex in very specific ways within the world of concert music. Uh, there's just tremendous problems oh, with, yeah. with people who do not understand, that you do not... Re- just because the orchestra falls silent for a moment, <laughs> that doesn't mean yes! it's time to start clapping. That's the end of a movement. Uh, you wait with your clapping. And, and also, I think... There's a way in which audiences, as they become a little bit more identifiable as audiences, as you say, the stage is lit, the audience is dark, people upstairs up on the stage are getting paid to do what they do, you're paying to see what they do, all of that. You, you yeah. The other thing you need is some kind of understanding of silence. Like You really don't want people applauding at the end of Hamlet's soliloquy, no matter <laughs> who gives it. You know, But there's, there are going to be some people who go, oh, I happen to know that's an important moment in this play. Maybe we should clap. But there's a sense of – there's a real value of silence that I think becomes drained a little bit out of the concept of silence. Yes. I mean the, the, the symphonic one is – arguably the best measure of the kind of social coding, the the being in the knownness, I think, that gets established to, to me, right? That's mm-hmm. that is truly the social measure. Like, God forbid you're the rube who claps between movements or whatever in the old, you know, style. Although I I in preparing for this, I came across uh on the website of the, I think it's the Carmel Symphony. They have this wonderful and invocation looks at a little bit the history and says look you know we're we're gonna be easy going about it if you hear something you really like and you want to applaud at any moment to react in some way go for it and i think as audiences have or as theaters have tried to make audiences more inclusive and more diverse that is a phenomenon that we're seeing more of whether that's diverse by generation whether that's diverse by cultural and demographic background we think people who bring in a different set of expectations are now being invited to bring those expectations into the theater space rather than being asked to conform to the established norms. And instead, those from the old world are asked, you know, you have to accommodate. It's a fascinating moment we're in. Right. So we'll fast forward a little bit to the latest expression of that, because there's a way in which our expectations and our way of expressing what we think we just experienced become a sort of circular argument within ourselves. I expect this to be a really good play. I also paid some insane amount of money because it's Broadway, so that's what my seats cost. I am going to give this play a standing ovation. And there's, to me, one of the tragedies is that the standing ovation, and I'm old enough to remember when it didn't happen reflexively and when it really meant something, it really, it's the most inflated currency of them all. It, it really is kind of almost worth nothing now to get a standing ovation. First of all, you got, that is one of my great bugaboos. I mean, you, you could get me on my on my soapbox real easily there. I could not agree more, but I do want to just fairly caveat that that is a phenomenon, I think, of U.S. theater and of a subset thereof, um, Broadway and kind of expensive regional theater. That it's it is absolutely uh, a curse that we're on there, but it it varies elsewhere. But I, I think I, I can remember, if I can just briefly anecdotally, I can remember going out to the Stratford Shakespeare Festival uh, up in Ontario uh, a number of years ago, and you always knew when it was, for instance, like a off-season, the more kind of local Canadian audiences, and they would applaud at the end of a performance, but there wouldn't be some massive standing ovation. And then when you would go in high season, these busloads of American tourists were there, immediately, as soon as the lights were dimming, everyone leapt to their feet. It's probably somehow to like justify 
the effort they've made to travel there and to warrant the kind of cultural value of being at this festival event somehow. And I think, right, if you go, if you pay $500 for your tickets to Hamilton, it should be important. And the way to measure that is to have a standing ovation, regardless of what it meant to you. And I think it's become completely inflated and people stand for anything. And then there's the kind of group pressure of everyone else is standing. What are you going to do, sit? It becomes obnoxious, you know? So I don't know. I, I evolved a way of muttering to my theater companion, standing for the playwright, standing for the lighting designer, standing for the guy who played, you know, second soldier from the, to like justify it to myself, the pressure. But Right. There is a lot of peer pressure. I've been that same person who's not getting up. Like I'll save my standing ovations for things that I really feel deserve them. But you, you really feel kind of like a putz because everybody around you yeah. uh, is up and they're kind of looking at you and saying, do you have yeah. like a broken leg like what, or, you know, what, are, are you uh, injured in some way or is there some right. reason? Like what should be the norm, just applauding and sitting there quietly becomes this aggressive statement of resistance, right? Which is not necessarily meant to be, right? I'm just like, I'm applauding, but I'm not standing. Right. There's some really nice instances in which applause starts to mean something different and starts to even mean, maybe even reference a bond between the performance and performers and their audience. Uh, I'm thinking, and I know that you're aware of this, of uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company's Nicholas Nickleby. This is like an eight and a half hour production. So at the end of this, the, really the performance and the, and the audience, they really know each other pretty well now. They've been spending a lot of time together. So explain how applause was used in that. Well, that was one of the great experiences of my life. In 1981, I was able to go. And I went on the, the weekend marathon where they did it all in one day, eight and a half hours. And I mean, you have, you've lived with these people. It's unbelievable. And at the end of that, it was, first of all, this is 81. So there's no ovation inflation going on at that point. But the audience rose as one in this extraordinary affirmation that went on for, it had to be 10 minutes. And the actors applauding back to the audience for the kind of duration that we've endured. It was this absolute collective act of like celebration. It was like, we not that we were patting ourselves on the back emptily, but it was like this recognition of something we'd all been through. It was so much more. And I, what I gathered is this went on, like all the performances, it was kind of habitual. It was just a spontaneous response there. And I think there's that piece of the longing to this thing that just happened. Yes, absolutely. And of course, that production of Nicholas Nickleby also was a breaker of the fourth wall in the sense that the characters often supplied narration. In other words, they would they would say their lines, but they would also essentially speak Dickens's stage directions. So, you know, yes. Roger Reese as Nicholas Nickleby would say, Nicholas was very disconcerted by this turn yeah. of events. Well, <laughs> so yes. long before Frank Galati and the Northwestern crowd introduced this kind of self-narration, they came across it. And so, right, so, and, and they, they'd walked among the audience. They'd been there. And so you truly lived with them as performers. They played multiple roles in it. Like, it was really like you spent this time with them as people. The, it wasn't about the fiction. So you didn't witness it. You participated in it. And the applause was, I don't know, we were all applauding our, each other. And sorry, it's hard for me to put my finger on exactly, but yeah. it was a it was an almost kind of spiritual moment. Much more communitarian, yeah. So um, a yeah. couple last things here, because there are instances where people don't applaud for various reasons. One of them would be in jazz venues where going back, I think probably some close to the 50s, um, there's this whole idea that you snap your fingers instead of applauding. Mm -hmm. What's going on yeah. there? I could well be wrong, but I think of that as originating with a beat. Yep. Oh, but when, and 
So to my mind, that's always existed as likely a kind of anti-bourgeois, if I say the bourgeois, you know, kind of, we're not going to applaud. That's for the stuffy up pretty toities. We're going to, you know, kind of just find another mechanism. Although snapping goes way, way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's recorded in the Roman responses too. But I, I think this was not a quote to historical moments. I think it was spontaneous there. So I think there's that. And then obviously that becomes associated with a kind of like quickly evolves into a kind of pretentious poetry jam kind of mechanism in one direction. But yeah, I think I think it's hard to say like this is this is a more informal, it's a kind of alternative experience we're having. It's not the symphony hall. It's not a formal performance. Uh, and so we have a different mechanism than the applause. Also, I wonder when you talk to the musical expert who's going to speak with you, whether there's also a separation from the clapping as part of the percussive experience of the generation of the music. And do we want to find something that's distinct? I wonder whether that's part of it. All right, we have to stop there. You've gotten us off to a rip-roaring, rollicking start. Uh, Gavin Witt, professor of uh, theater history at Tustin University, <laughs> longtime dramaturg. Thank you so much for being with us. If I were allowed to applaud, I would. Oh, yeah. Well, I applaud you, Bad. Thank you for having me. What a wonderful conversation. Thanks, All right, everybody. we're going to move on to the world of music right after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Clap on, clap off, clap on, clap off. Let you turn things on or off from anywhere in the room. Just plug in the clapper and a television, lamp, stereo, almost anything you want to clap on and off. Clap on, clap off, clap on, clap off, the clapper. That's a commercial for the clapper from 1984. See, it's something George Orwell did not anticipate. that we would have devices that we could turn on and off by clapping. We're talking about clapping today. Clapping is, you know, it is an aspect of bipedalism. We are not the only animals who do it, as I mentioned before the news. Well, first of all, seals do it, but they're just, they're so weird about it. Uh, But primates uh, often do clap. It's not always clear why they're clapping, um, but they do clap. Because the minute you get off all fours, you think, wow, 
<laughs> I've got like a whole bunch of new noise-making opportunities here. Let's try this beating my hands together thing. So uh, it's really big in music. Uh, and Eric El- Aaron Elsner is joining us right now. Uh, Aaron was with us for the tambourine show. We did an entire show about tambourines. Uh, and as a percussionist and professor of percussion at Webster University, she's also the ideal person to be talking about clapping. Uh, Aaron, welcome back. Hello, Colin. It's great to be back. So you know, it's interesting. I was I, I, when I was listening to Gavin just now, I, I thought, huh, I, I remember reading somewhere that clapping was supposedly invented by a, a Roman playwright named Clapius Magnus. <laughs> he didn't mention that. Yeah, actually, the Clapius uh, Maximus was a disease you got treated for as a sexually transmitted <laughs> Disease right. in, in, it's coming back in ancient Rome. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so, but it does. Well, we can get back to the Romans in a second because they were very big on clapping. But we, you know, as a musicologist, I, I assume what you're going to tell us is that clapping is kind of everywhere. It's so, sort of almost independent of genre. Most of music is probably shot through with it in some sense. Absolutely, and you know, it's interesting. There's, there are. Um, as Gavin said, some uh, groups of people today that uh, have been rumbling about returning to using finger snaps instead of claps, um, as they say it can be triggering, it's too loud, it's disruptive. But uh, for me, there's a warmth and a human quality to hand claps in music. Uh, most songs that incorporate hand claps are upbeat and happy, and they draw people in, inspire them to clap along and participate in the performance. So. Um, yeah, I mean, from everything from pop rock, Motown, R&B, gospel, there's a long tradition of hand claps within music, within songs themselves. And then uh, in percussion performance, specifically uh, clapping uh, as an instrument. Uh, so you've got pieces like Steve Reich's clapping music. <laughs> uh, Can I just tell you, Aaron? So Steve yeah. Reich's clapping music, I don't know if you know this, you probably do, but it got turned into a, an app game. Um, which I downloaded today. It's a it's it's a Steve Reich's clapping music game, and you try to clap along with these prompts. And first of all, I am rubbish at it. I get like really, really low scores all the time. But Colin, I'm slack jawed. I am not familiar. Yeah, no, it's really it's fascinating uh, because obviously Reich, as a minimalist, is the guy to do it. But I want to go back here into something you said before because I think it's so important, and I'm so glad you put it that way. Which is there's a humanity to clapping, right? Go into Phil Spector's studio. He's probably got every percussion instrument in the world. Why would he add clapping? Well, uh, Kat, this is B1. Let's listen to a little bit of Be My Baby and see how that sounds. So there's lots of noises you can make with instruments, but there's something, Aaron, about the sound of flesh banging on flesh in the form of a hand clap that, as you say, is very human. Exactly. And, you know, 
Most of the hand claps in pop and rock, R&B, soul, gospel are fairly simple. Like that Be My Baby clip, uh, they generally are in beats two and four, as you mentioned earlier, but sometimes they get a bit more complex and syncopated and they become, in many cases, a standout feature of the, of the song. In that clip, obviously, the claps start on beat four, then they move to two and four, uh, but they really add emphasis to the backbeat, uh, which is often played on the snare drum by the, by the drummer on the drum set. So, um, and yes, they were a part of obviously Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, mm -hmm. and in, are included in many, many different uh, girl groups and Motown groups and things in the '60s and '70s of that era. Right. So you know, when you were on the Tambourine Show, you were showing us that you, it isn't just a matter of hitting a tambourine exactly the same way all the time. There are a lot of things you can do with a tambourine. And really, you know, clapping has some different options. I mean, ranging from holding like some British upper class, you know, person holding one hand completely still and kind of rapping on it just with the other hand uh, to, you know, everything to over the head, uh, full arm seal clapping uh, and everything in between. The Romans actually had, th it seems like either two or three distinct names for clapping, right? Yes, they did. And they it, not only the Romans, uh, just going ripping off what you're saying, there is there's clapping, very specific types of clapping in flamenco music, in Indian music. Uh, flamenco music, they have, uh, it, it's called palmas. And it's a type of hand clapping uh, that has uh, a, a muted low clap, uh, a high-pitched clap, uh, cupping the palms, spreading the fingers, and there are actually people called palmeros and palmistas, the male and female hand clappers, who are essentially the metronome for the flamenco ensemble. So mm -hmm. it's pretty interesting where when you start looking into it, it's like, wow, it, it's so much bigger than just what we think of in pop rock stuff, blues, where it's, uh, you know, a bit more obvious. Right. Uh, by the way, if you ever get even more interested in the Roman part of it, I discovered a book by a professor, Greg Aldretti, today called Gestures and Acclamations in Ancient Rome. And he goes through all this stuff oh. about the clapping that they did. But of course, they were also very interested in clapping as a particular kind of acclamation. Um, Cicero, when he's abroad, when he writes to his friends who are still in the city, so to speak, he wants to know how much clapping people got. Like if some important person shows up for the theater, how much how loud did the crowd clap? I mean, the Romans very, very clapping uh, obsessed. But not only the Romans, you wrote a dissertation about what's called Carnatic music uh, in South India. Tell us about clapping in that. Yeah. So um, in graduate school, I, I studied Carnatic music, um, which is a type of music in southern India. And I created this 16 week curriculum incorporating the principles of conic uh, hall into a Western school music program. It hasn't been tested yet, but I'm confident in its potential. Um, and conical is a, a syllabic uh, language used in Southern India, and they count using a variety of hand claps, palm against palm, back of the hand against the palm, fingers against the palm. And they use what's called a tala, which is a metric cycle with specific number of beats that recur, tall in, uh, Sanskrit means clap. So if there are two players, one might be playing a drum, the other is using these varied hand claps to mark time in tandem, or they may just be vocalizing these percussion syllables while counting the tala with their hands using various claps 
and the syllables they're vocalizing are onomatopoeic. Each one represents a different stroke on the drum. So someone's playing, someone is doing these hand claps in these rhythmic cycles. Let's give uh, people a little sense uh, of that. Uh, this is uh, Trimuki Tala. I probably said that wrong. I think it was number four on the Billboard charts that year. Uh, this is a, a B2 cat. One, two, three, four. Clap, clap. Clap, clap. Clap, clap. Little, ring, middle. Wave. Wave. Clap, clap. Little, Ring, middle, clap, clap, wave, clap, clap, wave, clap, clap, little, ring, middle, clap, clap, wave, clap, clap, wave, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, ta, 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 ta. So, Aaron, tell us what we're hearing here. Yeah, so you can hear the clapping. So he's clapping the different sequences there. Um, and they are vocalizing. And, the, and that vocalizing is what is called conical. And so basically they're vocalizing what they will then apply to the drums later. Uh, you know, I studied with a renowned percussionist in college named Glenn Velez. And he's a, a special specialist in hand drums of the world. And when I started lessons with him, we didn't touch the drums for months. And as he uh, said, uh, you must be able to move, vocalize, and master all these hand gestures before you apply them to any instrument. And I think kind of pulling, tying that all in, it's clapping really does help internalize the beat in music. Um, and the, the clip you just played, there's some incredible videos floating around. That's B.C. Manjanath. Um, one where he applies conical rhythms to a Fibonacci sequence. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, and in the more I thought about it, it makes sense because the Fibonacci numbers are said to have roots in Sanskrit poetry from around 200 BC. So it's everything's connected. Golden ratio, most beautiful numbers in the universe, music, math. Um, yeah, it's very, very cool stuff. All right, let's get back to basic stuff, stuff that uh, people like me probably struggle with. <laughs> and so there is that whole issue uh, of clapping on the two and four as yeah. opposed to the one and three. I, for, does anybody know where that comes from or just, does it just sound better and funkier? Or I mean, why is it important to, to do the two and four? Yeah, so the two and the four are basically the natural backbeat. So in pop music, blues, many forms of Western music at least, it's the thing that helps perpetuate the groove. It's often when the drummer is hitting the snare drum. So for those people out there that may be a, a bit rhythmically challenged, you may be able to see the person playing the drums. Oh, okay, that's when the, the, they're hitting the snare drum. But really, yeah, it's just uh, throughout kind of the history, certainly um, from the 60s and 70s, uh, pop, doo-wop stuff, um, it was really used to emphasize that backbeat and perpetuate the groove of the piece. And the natural backbeat is on two and four, not not on beats one and three. So we're going to play this uh, clip that is circulated around on the Internet quite a bit. It's sort of a remarkable thing. This is uh, Harry Connick Jr. Uh, he's playing one of his tunes. The uh, possibly rhythmically challenged audience uh, starts in uh, clapping on the one and the three. And without really commenting on it, 
Uh, and you you probably have to be a little bit rhythmically or musicologically tuned to pick up what he's doing. But I'm going to tell you that a cert- at a certain point, he's going to play one measure in, uh, with an extra beat in it just so that he can get the audience uh, onto the twos and fours. Uh, and he does it without telling them. He does it before. Uh, he doesn't say anything about it before, during, and after. Uh, but that's what happens here. All right. So I hope I set this up reasonably. Here's B3, Cat. That would be So that's kind of a nifty trick there, Aaron. Yeah, very subtle, very slick. So if it's hard to hear that for anyone, if you just start counting one, two, three, four, when the claps first come in, you can you can hear that they're going one, two, three, four, one. And that frustrates a lot of performers and some audience members. <laughs> uh, but he, he graciously keeps his cool and instead uh, he adds an extra beat to one of the measures of the song, which turns his part around, forcing the claps to then be on two and four in the audience, many of them none the wiser. <laughs> All right. So, Aaron Elster, we're going to have to stop there, unfortunately, percussionist and professor of percussion at Webster University. I have no idea when the next call to you is coming or what musical instrument it's going to be about, but I know that I'm going to talk to you again sometime in the not-too-far-distant future. Thanks for being with us today. Excellent. Thanks so much, Colin. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to have a conversation with an old, old friend. I shouldn't say old like that, but we are old, actually. Frank Rizzo will be joining me. Kat Pastor is the technical producer of today's show. Uh, this show, this episode, was produced uh, by Jennifer LaRue. Uh, kind of an all-hands-on-deck thing, as usual. Jonathan McPants is around, making some sure the clips come out right. The tech's all good. Lily Tyson, our senior producer, is overseeing the whole thing. So thanks to everybody. And joining us now is, in truth, uh, an old friend and an old colleague, Frank Rizzo, theater critic for Variety and other publications. Uh, I won't say how many decades we've known each other for. I don't think that really oh, helps anything. Uh, quite, quite, quite a few. Yes. Probably around forty-five. Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, before I, we, Frank and I get into it, a couple of things I want to mention that we didn't really have time to get into. Uh, one of them is the so-called clap for carers, which started during the pandemic. Uh, people were um, finding opportunities to applaud for frontline healthcare workers. There was also among healthcare workers something called the clap out. That was a ceremony in hospitals when COVID patients were discharged. 
the staff would line up and clap. Uh, there's a, an American Sign Language version uh, of clapping, uh, which we also don't really have time to talk about. But before Frank gets go- going here, uh, I want to just play uh, this is an old clip uh, from I think, ni- the 1960s. This is Flip Wilson talking about why he likes applause. Well, I find that I got just enough time left to say that I like a big hand when I finish. <laughs> you know, when I finish. You know, I like a big hand. Generally, entertainers would be reluctant to say to the audience that they'd like a big hand. All of them want a big hand. Damn right, I want a big hand. Sammy Davis and Frank Sinatra want a big hand and $10,000 a night, too. <laughs> Y'all can split up the money. All I'm asking for is a little old... All I want is a little old jive big hand. If I came on your job and I could do you a favor, I'd do it. If you was a cab driver, I wouldn't rob you. If I was a cloud, I wouldn't rain on your parade. What the hell? I want to make it very clear. I'm not begging for applause. I'm not begging for... That wouldn't be right. I never infringe upon your right to decide for yourself whether you like me or not. If you didn't intend to applaud, don't applaud. Keep your damn hands to yourself. (laughs) What I'm saying is that if you did intend applauding, I'd like a big hand. Okay, so that's Flip Wilson. Frank Rizzo, I think he's talking basically on behalf of anybody who ever got on stage for any reason, right? Everybody wants a big hand. Yes, but there's there's also the medium hand, which most uh, shows deserve. Uh, I I know sometimes actors, and my husband's an actor, loves this thunderous applause, but but sometimes it just doesn't come. I I remember (laughs) once he left the stage and he was saying, you know, I'm bathing in their indifference. And uh, so um, I generally uh, prefer to go the middle route. Uh, I, as a critic, I do the uh, the middle applause. So, yeah, David Letterman used to say to his audience, thank you. I think that was the definition of a smattering of applause. Um, <laughs> so you don't want a smattering. So there's, there's some legitimate places for applauding. We've talked about illegitimate applauding earlier in the show. But, mm-hmm. you know, you know, when a big star walks out on stage. Yeah, entrance applause. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, um, it usually depends on the show itself. If it's sort of what I would call an old-fashioned play, like uh, Lost in Yonkers, and you have a star like Marsha um, Mason, um, actually, it's written into the script where there's like a little uh, a pause or there's a little bit of business, and that's so the audience uh, can applaud and welcome a star back without uh, overstepping any of the important lines that that playwright might write. But in terms of uh, shows that are a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more real, a little bit more edgy, um, that generally doesn't even happen unless it's a huge star. It all depends on the show. Uh, Hugh Jackman you know, uh, gets a tremendous amount of uh, applause when, of course, uh, uh, he's first seen on um, The Music Man. And that's what I would call the reveal. Mm-hmm. Where he's on stage, but the audience doesn't know he's on stage. Hello, Dolly is the same way when Carol Channing is riding on the trolley reading a newspaper and suddenly uh, the newspaper comes down and there's the star. Surprise, surprise. Of course, that's sort of base for applause. But uh, generally, uh, modern playwrights and modern productions and even modern stars sort of um, 
you know, the, the, they see it as a little bit old fashioned, but right. sometimes you just can't help yourself. And, and I don't blame audiences one single bit. Well, there's also a sense in which applauding is contagious, right? If a, a, one sort of core group of people start to do it in an audience, it gets bigger, people, other people jump in. And I assume that's what happens in particular in the much rarer phenomenon of stopping the show, right? There are occasions where somebody does sing some enchanted evening so beautifully that, that's, yeah, go ahead. That phrase is only used, Colin. I've, I've been doing the theater for 40, 50 years. It's only, I've only seen it one and a half times. <laughs> and uh, now there's thunderous applause, there's great applause, but you know, to stop the show, you have to literally stop the show where nothing can go forward until whatever, whatever the actors on stage acknowledge the audience's applause. And um, when it happens, it's, it's pretty magical. Uh, I've only had it, like I said, done a, a few times. The most famous one that I've reported on is the opening night for My Fair Lady at the Schubert Theater in New Haven, where they, after uh, um, the Rain in Spain number, mm -hmm. the audience would just not stop applauding. And Rex Harrison and uh, I think it was Robert Coote uh, who had never been in musicals before, they'd only been in plays, didn't know what to do. <laughs> there was this 19-year-old or 20-year-old Julie Andrews who literally took them by the hand and, you know, just they just nodded in appreciation and then the audience finally stopped. But otherwise, it'd probably still be going on now. So we only get time for one more question. As a critic, I assume you're reluctant to join a standing ovation at the end of a show. I go the middle way. My, like I said, my husband's an actor, so I respect the effort, no matter how bad it is on stage. That you know they were brave enough to go on stage; they deserve something. So I give a what I would call the medium clap, mm -hmm. uh, but I uh, never uh, stand up unless uh, it really overwhelms me, like Hamilton or a particular performance. And sometimes if I do reluctantly stand up, I don't applaud because I just have to see what's going on and stole it. <laughs> right. So yeah, sometimes it's just frustrating that you can't see them take their bows and have their smiles and stuff. Have you ever done the thing? I think I've had it a few times where you're, it's the opposite. You're one of like four people standing up. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm never that um, thrilled for a performance that I feel so singular that I want. And I'm a kind of a shy guy anyway. In, in that regard. But I'll tell you, you know, and you you must feel the same way when you give talks. You know, it's it really seduces you at the end of a good lecture or a good talk and suddenly a classroom or a audience really applause. You know, you understand how actors get hooked. Right. No, the only time, I mean, I'm always talking about how standing ovations are overused and they're uh, an inflated and therefore deflated currency. The only time I didn't do that was when Metcalf and Bloom and I did the musical uh, at the Ivoryton. And then this, I would tell everybody, oh, we got four standing ovations. Because <laughs> it was like really important that we got four standing ovations. So, yeah, everybody else's standing ovation is a joke, but your own, yeah. very important. Well, very... Then it's pretty good. Of course, at good speed, you get a crouching ovation. Right. But um, <laughs> that, yeah. that counts too. Right. Um, a lot of People are just trying to get to their coats on and be the first one up the aisle. Right. Also, a lot of people just having trouble standing all the way up. Um, all right. Frank Rizzo is a theater critic for Variety and other publications. We will have him back to talk about other things because we enjoy, enjoy him so much. And I hope you enjoyed this show. You may clap in the privacy of your home. If you're driving your car, please do not clap. <laughs>